0: Hey, it's Jen. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly developing and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. For the latest news, tune into your public radio station and follow updates at npr.org. This is the 1A Podcast. I'm Jen White, and you're listening to the final news roundup of 2022. Speaking of year-end traditions, the government is once again on the brink of a shutdown. On Thursday, the Senate approved an omnibus spending bill worth $1.7 trillion. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer praised both the Democrats and the Republicans who voted in favor.
1: They know that following the MAGA Republicans is Thelma and Louise over the cliff. There was a desire on the Republican side, despite the pressure from the MAGAs and what the House Republicans said,
0: to get this done. That legislation is now with the House. Lawmakers need to pass it by the end of the day to avoid a shutdown. There's another reason Congress wants to push it through. A bomb cyclone is bearing down on the U.S., snarling holiday travel and driving temperatures into the single digits. We talk winter weather, big budgets, and the January 6th final report. What's in it and what happens now? With us, Mary Harris, the host of the Slate Daily News podcast, What Next? Mary, welcome back to the program. Hey, great to be here. Also with us, Jordan Fabian, the White House correspondent for Bloomberg News. Jordan, thanks for joining us.
1: Hey, thanks for having me back.
0: And Ron Elving, a senior politics editor and correspondent at NPR. Ron, always great to have you.
2: Good to be with you,
0: Jen. Okay, so let's start with the spending bill. $1.7 trillion is it's a chunk of change, but what are some of the big things in this bill, Mary?
3: Oh my gosh, what isn't in this bill with that much money? One of the really big things in here that my colleague Fred Kaplan flagged was a massive defense spending portion. We're spending so much more than we have in the past, a 10% bump from last year's defense budget. So that's a big thing in here. Also stuff like the Electoral Count Act, which Congress has been trying to pass for a long time that shores up some of the democratic norms, makes it clear that the vice president can't... um, you know, change the election outcome, stuff like that. But then, of course, you know, just all the money to keep the government going. So it's... It's a massive budget. There are lots of earmarks in here, too, for lawmakers. It's almost—it's just hard to sum up in one answer, but it's it's huge.
0: Ron, anything lawmakers wanted in there that didn't make the cut?
2: Yes, there have been a fair number of lawmakers who were holding out for an enhanced child tax credit, for example. Uh, People on the Democratic side and consumer advocates who were hoping there would be at least one provision of the enhanced child tax credit that uh, came out of COVID that would be extended further. This has been a tremendous value for many lower income families and has actually lifted millions and millions of children out of poverty in the last couple three years so there was an effort to extend that even despite the easing of the pandemic conditions so there were there were a number of things it depends on how small you want to get every lobbyist in Washington was trying to get an ornament on the Christmas tree <laughs> that is what happens every year if congress hasn't already passed all the appropriations bills and if the continuing resolution runs out and there is no new continuing resolution government simply shuts down and that's unacceptable any time but certainly at christmas in the midst of a once in a generation storm as they're calling it so this is emergency funding in a sense but it's also really being done because the normal 12 appropriations bills didn't get done by september 30th this is just correcting for all of that.
0: Well, the bill's authors presented it to their congressional colleagues Tuesday morning. That means lawmakers had two days to read something that's more than 4,000 pages long. And that clearly riled many Republicans, including Utah Senator Mike Lee.
2: This is legislative barbarism. This is extortion, and it's wrong. So I'm sorry, that is way too soon to be asking us how quickly we're going to jump to expedite their process from which they excluded every single one of us and 330
0: million Americans. Jordan, it seems like we end up here over and over and over again. Why is this a repeat cycle? Yeah, Senator Lee uh, is right uh, that this is a rush
1: process, uh, but he's wrong in that it's just the Democrats who do it. Uh, as you pointed out, this has happened under Democratic presidents, Democratic Congresses, Republican presidents, and Republican Congresses. And uh, it was as Rob was pointing out earlier the the funding deadline for the government is usually the end of the fiscal year, which is September thirtieth. And what's supposed to happen is that each committee and is supposed to come up with their own appropriations bill and pass that through the regular process. But that is increasingly not getting done. Uh, It it probably has a lot to do with the typical congressional gridlock that you see around a lot of topics and increased polarization. You know, uh, it it used to be easier for members of both parties to work on these appropriations bills, but they have become uh, much more political. So the, the process gets slowed down, and then when you reach the the end-of-the-year deadline, uh, the lawmakers try to jam it all into one package so they can get it passed and avoid a shutdown or a short-term continuing resolution, which would only kick the can down the road and create another uh, funding deadline uh, probably early next year.
0: Well, a group of GOP House members sent a letter threatening to tank the pet projects of any Senate Republican who voted for the bill. Given this atmosphere, Mary, what's going to happen to this in the House?
3: Well, I mean, it's going to pass the House today because we're still in Democratic hands right now. But, you know, it just it's a foreshadowing of what's going to happen on January 3rd, where the Republican superstructure is still very much in flux. You saw Kevin McCarthy come out and, you know, sort of give a thumbs up to his colleagues who are saying, you know, we're going to prevent senators from passing what they want if they vote for this. And that was largely seen as a political move, right? He needs to signal to his conservative colleagues, like, I've got you, I have your back, because he really wants to be speaker on January third, when that is like the first order of business. And that's very unclear right now. So I see all of this kind of back and forth as really A warning call. The Republicans made a bet here that if they could make enough noise, they could maybe get a continuing resolution and drag this into the new year when Republicans would be in charge of the House. It looks like that bet, they lost it. Um, But it is a sign of what's to come.
2: Ron, your read? That is very much my read. I think that Kevin McCarthy is engaged in politicking here to be speaker. Uh, That's why he is saying these things. One of the features of this particular legislation is that it funds the government into September of 2023. That means that there doesn't need to be a new continuing resolution and there won't be the same opportunity for Kevin McCarthy or whoever is the speaker on the House side to hold hostage the debt limit raising that has to happen. When each of the debt limits expires and there are outstanding obligations of the U.S. government that have to be honored, loans all over the world... People who hold bonds, who have every right to get their money back, that has to be done, but it can be held hostage to extract other kinds of concessions from whomever is in charge, be it a Republican speaker or a Democratic speaker or Republicans in either chamber or a president of either party. We've seen it done to presidents of either party. So this is something that the Republicans in the House very much were looking forward to having as an hostage-taking opportunity next year on the debt limit, and that was taken away specifically by the way this bill was structured, and they're very unhappy about that.
0: So the House Select Committee investigating the insurrection released its final report late last night after 17 months of investigating the attack, and the report placed full blame on the former president, Colin him the central cause for the insurrection and saying, quote, none of the events of January 6th would have happened without him, end quote. Jordan, what's one big takeaway you have from the report?
1: Yeah, without having the luxury of being able to go through the whole thing, uh, what stood out to me is not only Donald Trump's actions and and his central role in the January 6th insurrection, but the people around him who enabled him uh, to do these things, to put pressure on state and local election officials, to put pressure on members of Congress and Mike Pence. To try and overturn the results once it got to Congress, uh, the it, the, well, the committee makes it clear that this wouldn't have been likely such a, a cataclysmic event without the help of people like Mark Meadows and Rudy Giuliani and, and even junior aides. It goes really down the list. There, there's one section where you know Hope Hicks uh, remarks to uh, I believe it's one of Melania Trump's aides uh, on January 6th. You know we all sort of seem like domestic terrorists, and and, and that sort of I thought put it really interestingly that uh, you know, while Donald Trump was a force of nature in this event, it wouldn't have happened without the people around him.
3: Mary, what about for you? I mean, for me, the most interesting thing here is that there's a recommendation that Congress consider banning the former president, Donald Trump, from holding office again, citing the 14th Amendment. And the reason I think that's so interesting is that, of course, if the impeachments of Donald Trump had been successful, he would have been banned from holding office. In some ways, this seems like a make good on those two failed um, impeachments. And it's a little unclear how this would work as a mechanism. And there's certainly no chance that in a Republican House, this is going to happen from the legislative side. But it opens up all these other questions of like, does the 14th Amendment apply to the president? There's some legal question about that. Does there need to be litigation to ban the, president from, the former president from holding office again?
0: There's just so many questions. And it's really interesting to me to see how that's going to be resolved. Ron, I want to hear your big takeaways after after the break, we'll be back with more in just a moment. We're rounding up some of the week's biggest headlines. Let's get back to the conversation. Ron, let's pick up with your big takeaways from this final report from the J6 Committee.
2: You know, we've been talking about a 4,000-page omnibus from Congress. And so this report, at 800 pages, is almost a snack read by comparison. (laughs) But what strikes me about it is that the committee seems to think that some people might actually read it. That it was not written in the usual lawyerly language that such reports are written in. It was written in what we call narrative style, so that people without a law degree or a deep, deep background in all of the details of this investigation, might actually get something out of it and see what the committee has found, the essential guilt here being one person. Everything circling around him, uh, whatever influence he might have been under by others, it was all from him, about him, and directed by him. And that point, I think, comes through very well because this has been written by people who want to be read. And uh, in a little bit uh, of an imitation of the hearings themselves, which were put on by a professional television producer, uh, it has that quality of wanting to communicate.
0: Well, and how important is that, Ron, considering the fact that this committee disappears in January when Republicans take control of the House?
2: that means it is of paramount importance that as many people read this as possible because this committee is disbanding and it's going to be subject to a lot of vituperation by the new House majority. Uh, they're going to try to dismantle it. They're going to try to dismantle the product and they're going to try to blame it on somebody else. And they're going to try to say that there just should have been more police or, or maybe Nancy Pelosi should have called out the National Guard or something to that effect. I mean, we've heard all of this from the former president. Uh, this committee is not going to be able to continue to press its case. It is simply not. So this is what is left behind, and that's why it's important that this be as, as clearly communicated as possible so that it can live
0: on. Well, January 6th, Committee Chairman Democratic Representative Benny Thompson has also talked about what the panel did not do. Speaking to MSNBC on Thursday, he called out the behavior of certain attorneys. There were some lawyers who gave bad advice to people who Uh, gave depositions to our committee. That is clearly
1: an ethical violation on behalf of those lawyers. We can prove it, but we said, well, we'll let the Bar Association handle that on their own. There were lawyers also paid by individuals to represent clients who came before our committee who basically had a vested interest in those clients not telling
0: the truth. Now, along with the report, the committee has also decided to share some of its evidence um, with the public, including transcripts of witness testimony. Mary, how will making the evidence public impact the Justice Department's investigation?
3: Well, I mean, obviously, it's kind of up to the Justice Department what to do now. And so it just becomes more evidence for them to examine, and more evidence for the American public, like Ron was saying. You know, for me, looking at this January 6th report, something that's really striking is comparing it to the two impeachment trials, because the evidence you're looking at is so different. When you were looking at those impeachment trials, it was sometimes third-hand evidence, you know, just focused on bringing people in and having them answer questions. We have transcripts here, we have text messages here, we have videotaped um, testimony here. And that's important because it becomes this steady drumbeat that's unavoidable. And having that level of evidence really puts the onus on the Justice Department to do something. But of course, you know, we've seen Merrick Garland is incredibly reticent to do anything that seems political. He has a special counsel, Jack Smith, who's really going to be receiving this evidence and deciding what to do next. So it's kind of a jump ball what happens. But I think that drumbeat, like Ron said, it's so important. And it's clearly very personal for these lawmakers. As Ron said, like you read this report, Benny Thompson Begins his section by writing as if he's writing a narrative essay. He says, We were told to remove our pins, our special pins that identified us as lawmakers. And you can see in that, you can see in Liz Cheney talking about her grandfather, you know, this is really personal for them. And so I don't think that that will let up. And I think that having the additional evidence come out will just keep the drumbeat going.
0: Well, the J-6 House subcommittee announced it would also refer some Republican congresspeople to the Ethics Committee for denying subpoenas, and that includes House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. Jordan, what does this mean for the House as Republicans are set to take over next month?
1: Well, big picture, it, it, it means that the new Congress is going to be seated uh, among the rancor that's still resonating from January 6th, that this is still going to be hanging over the chamber uh, three years later, or two years later, I should say. Uh, th- that being said, the actual consequences for the lawmakers remain to be seen because the House Ethics Committee can investigate uh, the, these lawmakers for you know w- their Roles in in this uh, in the January sixth riot, but they don't really have the power to unilaterally, uh, you know, expel them or even censure them. That would require a vote of all lawmakers on the House floor, and with the uh, the, the chamber flipping over to the you know the same Republicans, many of whom you know really did enable uh, Donald Trump in his efforts to overturn the election, uh, that's unlikely to happen. So uh, we might have to. I guess, maybe even wait and see if the Democrats might take over again in two years for there to be actual consequences from an ethics standpoint for these lawmakers.
0: Well, let's turn to another information dump this week. On Tuesday, the House Ways and Means Committee released five years of former President Trump's tax returns. Trump regularly paid hundreds of dollars or less on his federal income taxes, despite reporting tens of millions of dollars in earnings through his company. Mary, big takeaways from the documents that have been made public here? Well, I feel like, like everything
3: else Trump related, these taxes, they're going to be kind of a war shark test. Like, do you look at them and see a smart businessman pulling some moves that make him smarter? Or do you see someone avoiding the basic duties of citizenship, like supporting the government and the people around him? I mean, what's interesting to me is just the wild swings in how much Trump was paying to the government. Like you look at 2017, according to the New York Times, you know, Trump paid something like $750 in taxes after his tax credits. Then you look at 2018, he paid more like a million dollars. In taxes, and this shift was, you know, simply because of a windfall. They say from his, you know, inheritance, he sold some property. But it's just wild to think about that back and forth, why it's there, and the fact that eventually in 2020 he was paying zero dollars in taxes. The other thing I'll say is that it's customary for the IRS to investigate an audit presidents. This happens routinely to Obama, to Biden. And it seems like it didn't happen in the same way with Trump. That raises huge questions about accountability, why that decision was made. So to me, I'm really
0: interested to see what happens now that that's been revealed. Well, the Ways and Means Committee spent four years fighting a legal battle with the former president over these returns. Jordan, how did the committee finally secure their release?
1: Well, the Supreme Court recently ruled that uh, the the committee could obtain the tax returns, and uh, that wasn't the end of it, though. So uh, the the returns were turned over to the committee, but then there was a apparently a very heated and uh, intense debate within the Ways and Means Committee about whether to release the returns to the public. That debate lasted over four hours uh, last week, and eventually they did decide to release the tax returns, albeit uh, not right away. They had to take some time to redact some personal information from them. But uh, it was really a dramatic ending to what has been, as you just pointed out, a years-long saga to try and get these tax returns out to the public. And uh, another interesting outcome of this was that uh, the House voted on a bill, uh, although it's unlikely to become law, to essentially force the IRS to not only audit the presidential tax returns, but then make them public. And and that was, uh, I think, a product of some of the frustration that Democratic lawmakers had in trying to obtain these tax returns over the last four years.
0: Ron, big picture, what kind of effect do you think This back and forth over the former president's tax returns has on our expectations of transparency from the person sitting in the highest office in this country.
2: Like everything else that has to do with Donald Trump, uh, it's going to be different now because he challenged all the the heretofore presumptions about what a president's obligations were, and also, I think, defied a lot of norms of the proper thing to say. For example, when it was exposed uh, through a leak that he had many years of not paying taxes, and this was discussed in the debate with Hillary Clinton back in 2016, Uh, Hillary Clinton thought she had kind of an ultimate gotcha by exposing this fact about him or talking about it. Someone else had exposed it. And Donald Trump simply said, yes, that makes me smart. Mm -hmm. And a sizable portion of the audience applauded. And a sizable portion of the voting public applauded by voting for him. And that has been his attitude all along. I don't have to tell you about my taxes. I don't have to do what other presidents have done. And if I am not paying a lot of money on this lifestyle that you see before you or all my vast wealth, that makes me smart. So the question to me is, what does that make the rest of us?
0: Well, Republicans are set to take over the House next year, and several representatives have called the release of Trump's taxes political retaliation. So, Mary, what are you watching for from the Republican-led Ways and Means Committee come January?
3: Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I just think it's a really open question what— the republicans are going to be investigating in terms of i mean they're they're going to turn the tables here and so we I, I, I just feel like there's so much they could be digging into i'm actually sort of curious what jordan and ron have to say about this one jordan what do you think
1: yeah i, I think they haven't really indicated uh you know if they're going to have you know some sort of like revenge tax return release of uh, like a prominent democrat like joe biden or somebody like that but look i you know hunter biden is someone who the House Republicans have put in their crosshairs for investigation. Uh, he's currently under federal investigation for a number of uh, matters related to his foreign business dealings uh, and also a firearms investigation. And so, you know, do, you know, do they? Is there some sort of tax angle there uh, for the Ways and Means Committee where they would somehow publicize tax information? from Hunter Biden. I don't know that they would do that. You know, it seems like the House Oversight Committee is the one that's driving the train on that investigation. But uh, they've promised to go to the mat on these investigations. And so I wouldn't rule anything out uh, from this House majority.
0: And Ron, come January, what are you watching for from Republicans? It might be interesting to see whether or
2: not they see a lot of political gain in going after all of these different investigations. Some of them, I believe they will certainly pursue. And Hunter Biden, I think, has been telegraphed for a long while. They will get to do that and and please their hardcore base. And their hardcore base is going to demand those investigations. And anyone who stands in the way is going to be anathema to the hardcore base. But I think at some point as we get closer to 2024, there may be some lessening of that enthusiasm, more of a sense of what else are we going to have to show for our two years in the majority as we approach the election in 2024. Are we going to want to have made some sort of arrangements with the Senate and with President Biden so as to actually do something? Or are we going to have been a two-year Republican majority that basically investigated Hunter Biden and some other people who haven't, after all, been president?
0: Well, we'll have to wait and see what happens. We got this tweet from Aaron who says the Republican House will do nothing for the American people. All they will do is pointless partisan investigations. Well, this Christmas could be the coldest in decades as a major winter storm sweeps the country. Heavy snow and record low temperatures are expected. More than 200 million people are under storm advisories. That's about two-thirds of the U.S. population. Forecasters have been talking all week about this system in something called a bombogenesis. We turn to Matthew Capucci of the Capital Weather Gang for an explainer
4: what happens during a bomb cyclone
3: is that the storm strengthens so quickly it's literally lifting air up and away from the surface so the weight the air pressure begins to fall by at least 2.4 percent of the atmosphere's ambient mass in roughly 24 hours this thing will far outpace that so it's kind of like a vacuum effect the more air that's lifted up and out the more it can suck in and the stronger the winds
0: the storm started on tuesday ron how has it progressed so far
2: it has progressed uh, perhaps a little more slowly than some people thought. I, I personally am grateful for that because I was on a aircraft yesterday uh, sitting on a tarmac in the Midwest and wondering if it was going to be possible to get back to Washington, D.C. Uh, outside the window, as we sat on a tarmac, everything looked like a scene from Dr. Zhivago. So uh, this, this storm perhaps could have hit a little earlier and maybe shut things down a little earlier, but that probably means it's just going to intensify into the weekend and really clobber, Chris. Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, and we have a real variety of things to deal with here. Super low temperatures in much of the country, certainly in the Midwest, below well below zero. Uh, Not that that's unknown, but it's pretty early in the year for that. A lot of heavy snow. And here's the one that I think is maybe most unusual for these kinds of storms. Matthew touched on this, it's the wind. Yeah. It's the it's the it's the transfer of large masses of air. That doesn't usually go with winter weather.
0: <laughs> well, freezing temperatures could be fatal for vulnerable populations like the elderly or the unhoused. Mary, how prepared are cities for this storm?
3: Well, it's a good question. And I feel like we're just going to have to see. But when I see facts like the fact that you're seeing warming centers opening in Houston and Atlanta, it's just, it shows you how big of a deal this storm is. You know, I live in New York City where we're used to cold weather, not this cold potentially. But the fact that it will be so cold in so much of the country will just have these unexpected impacts on people, on everyone. So I think we'll just have to see how it goes. I mean, we, we saw over the last years how Texas has struggled with cold weather, and it's caused real problems for them in terms of power, in terms of
0: plumbing. And so I'm curious to see how that plays out over the next few days. Well, more than 13,000 flights have been delayed or canceled so far, Jordan. What does that mean for holiday travel over the next few days?
1: I expect there will be a uh, a lot of chaos at airports, uh, dangerous conditions on the roads. Uh, I was in the Oval Office yesterday. Uh, President Biden had an emergency storm briefing and urged people yesterday to leave now because the weather was only going to get worse. I don't know if that advice still applies, but it's uh, certainly going to be an ugly Christmas weekend.
0: And let's take a quick moment to remember Pittsburgh Steelers Hall of Fame running back Franco Harris. Harris died on Wednesday, days before the 50th anniversary of the catch that became known as the Immaculate Reception, perhaps one of the greatest plays in NFL history.
2: Last chance for the Steelers. Bradshaw trying to get away. And his pass is broken up by
5: Tatum. Tipped off. Franco Harris has it. And he's over. Five seconds to go. He
2: grabbed it with five seconds to go and scored. Ricochet out there off of Jack Tatum. And into the man of the year, Franco Harris's hands.
0: That sound was from 1972. I'm Jen White, wrapping up the news in 2022. We'll be back with more after the break. Now, let's get back to the last news roundup of the year. Let's move now to immigration. Some migrants are seeking asylum at the U.S. Mexico border. This week, more than 400 Texas National Guardsmen were deployed to El Paso, Texas. El Paso Mayor Oscar Leeser declared a state of emergency last Saturday.
1: I said from the beginning that I would call it when I felt that either our uh, asylum seekers or our community was not safe, and I really believe that today our asylum seekers are not safe as we have hundreds and hundreds on the streets, and that's not the way we want to treat people.
0: Mary, as you mentioned, freezing temperatures are about to hit Texas. What are migrants in El Paso and these border towns facing right now? Well, I mean, they're facing a
3: lot of confusion first of all. I mean, and cold. But confusion because there's this question of what's going to happen when they cross the border. Over the course of the pandemic, there was this Title 42 policy, which the CDC put in place. It allowed authorities to expel migrants at U.S. land borders, basically no asylum seekers. And it, it's we're in this moment where it seems like Title 42 may go away. And that As a result, we're seeing lots of people who have been at the border or are coming towards the border sort of also preparing for that to go away, and a potential surge of people coming to the border. El Paso, it's a little hard to link that with Title 42, but it certainly shows how this tension has built up in border areas over the course of the pandemic as it's become unclear, like, can you come in, can you not? And it's gotten more confusing. And now with the possibility
0: that this rule may be going away, I think all of those border areas are preparing for a change. I I want to turn to Title 42 in a moment, but uh, first, Ron, city and county leaders in El Paso say, yes, there are National Guardsmen here, but what we need is humanitarian assistance. What kind of assistance are they seeking?
2: Food and shelter. Uh, they, they need help with finding places for these people to spend the night. They, they also just need the basics. Uh, many of these people have been on the road now for weeks. Many weeks, we have family units traveling together with people of all ages, people in various states of health. Uh, some of these people are coming from Venezuela. Uh, some of these people are coming from Cuba. Many of them have what you would call an absolute, uh, well, a classic case, a traditional case for or asylum, but because of the pandemic and because of the collision between all of the policy making about immigration, which is a terrible, confused problem before the pandemic, and then all of the policy making problems around the pandemic, uh, we have this collision with these people caught in the middle. So the very first thing we need is just to get them through the next few days, the next few weeks, to get them some kind of basics as. Here in Washington and in state capitals, wherever we work out the legalisms of how they're going to be dealt with.
0: Now, Mary, you mentioned Title 42, and that's the policy that restricted thousands of asylum seekers at the border um, over public health concerns during the pandemic. It was set to end this week, but the U.S. Supreme Court has temporarily blocked its expiration. So you said this—it's it's expiring soon, but do we know when?
3: No, it's kind of in the Supreme Court's hands right now. The Biden administration asked the court to delay the ending of Title 42 until at least December 27th, basically giving them a chance to get through the holiday uh, before they deal with a surge of people at the border, an anticipated surge of people. Because last month, the Department of Homeland Security projected that between 9,000 and 14,000 migrants may attempt to cross the U.S. southern border when Title 42 ends. It's just huge. And to have that in combination with the holiday was clearly a lot. But the, but the administration is preparing for Title 42 to go away. But it's unclear because it's at the Supreme Court.
0: Well, Vice President Kamala Harris spoke to NPR about what the White House is doing about the border.
6: And that means, again, putting more agents um, on the border as appropriate so that we can manage um, what might be an influx. It is about the work that we have been increasing around arresting human smugglers. And it is the work that we have been doing that has been about bringing the partners and the allies together on an international level, understanding that we are seeing these migration trends
0: around the globe. Jordan, what are Biden's plans for the border heading into the new year, especially with Title 42 set to expire at some point?
1: Yeah. As the vice president in that interview mentioned, they're going to send additional border agents down to the southwest border. They're going to try to expand the number of uh, shelter space available uh, to try and uh, accommodate the, the possibly up to 14,000 people crossing per day. Uh, but beyond that, they're considering even more controversial items like preventing uh, certain single adults from coming in between land borders and declaring asylum and and basically putting uh, those people into what's called expedited removal proceedings, which would essentially allow them to uh, deport them uh, quite quickly. So uh, those plans haven't been announced yet. Uh, The White House is waiting to see what happens with Title 42 before they announce it. But uh, they're trying to get more resources and possibly change some policies to try and uh, essentially help authorities handle what could be a really big influx and one that could become
2: unmanageable and overwhelm them.
0: Ron, what can the White House do on its own and what requires congressional action here?
2: Any change in the law is going to require congressional action. And as we've seen in the past, executive orders can be countermanded by not only eventual congressional action, but also by a single federal judge. So it's extraordinarily difficult. And here you have 19 states, State's Attorney General uh, suing and uh, pushing this uh, this decision up to the Supreme Court in recent days. So you have state attorneys general, you have state authorities of various kinds. You also have all the competing local interests trying to deal with the actual human problem. And all of this comes back to the White House with what are you going to do about it? And if they try to issue an executive order, that doesn't really have the authority of changing the law. So in the short run, all they can do is apparently a kind of bureaucratic band-aid where they try to send more border agents to try to deal with differentiating the cases and possibly uh, mobilize more aid. There is more aid in the omnibus that was just passed this week uh, to try to deal with some of the humanitarian demands of this situation.
0: Well, Mary, that takes us back to this question about what we can expect from the new Congress in January. And so specifically around this issue of immigration reform, what, if anything, do you think will get done?
3: It's so hard to say because, you know, we've tried for so many years to pass some kind of immigration reform. And even when there's some kind of bipartisan agreement, like with the case of the Dreamers, people who are brought here by their parents, who lots of people on both sides of the aisle, they want to address this issue. It just seems like we keep not being able to do it. But there was this really interesting article in Axios where they talked about Biden's approach to immigration in 2023 and how he might try to frame the immigration conversation. And it was basically positing that the administration was going to say that inflation is a reason for us to do Immigration reform. The idea is the labor market is so tight right now. We actually need people coming into this country to do certain jobs, and having migrants come in helps might help relieve inflation because of that. I think it's kind of an interesting argument. I have no idea how it will be received by a Republican Congress, but it it did seem to me to be something interesting. We'll see where it goes. And, you know, it's kind of anyone's guess what this Congress will look like when it comes back on January 3rd and what it will be amenable to. But we know that it's going to be rowdy.
0: Jordan, any sense of what we might see from Congress specifically around immigration reform in 2023?
1: So there's a proposal that actually failed in the lame duck session that was authored by Senators Kristen Sinema and Tom Tillis that would have provided uh, legal pathways for dreamers, the uh, undocumented immigrants who are brought to the U.S. as children in exchange for some border security provisions. Now, th- th- I I have been covering this issue for more than a decade, and I have to say, I'm I'm pretty pessimistic that the this is going to get done. Even though those senators say they're going to bring this back up, this issue of immigration has been an intractable issue for ten years now. You know, Donald Trump uh, really you know he, he ran for office saying you know immigrants are rapists, are bringing in drugs and crime, and that really accelerated what we were seeing as some really you know anti immigration trends within the GOP and that those have only since hardened and uh, the Republicans who are going to be running Congress especially in the house uh, would say uh, you know I think to the inflation argument well you know more Americans should uh, get those jobs then even though that's not necessarily possible at this moment so I think you would need to see a major breakthrough uh, a major you know breaking of the fever is, is President Biden might put it, uh, in order to see some immigration action in Congress next year.
0: Let's turn now to Twitter. Elon Musk says he'll step down as the CEO of Twitter again. Musk has already said he didn't plan on leading the company long term. So Ron, what do you make of this announcement and the poll (laughs) Musk put up on Twitter about whether or not he should stay in charge of the company?
2: There seems to be a great deal of ad hoc decision-making here. Uh, one move does not lead to the next in any logical progression except as a kind of reaction. Uh, it's, it's a little bit like a, a self-driving car that's out of control. So in, in this case, we have the programmer of the self-driving car wondering how to fix the programming. So, he wants, obviously, to offload the unpleasant parts of this job, the unpopular parts of this job, on somebody else, but still make a go of it as the owner of Twitter and basically recover something of the $44 billion investment he made in it at a time when the advertisers are fleeing. And he's not having much luck thus far trying to get those advertisers to come back.
0: Well, Musk also reinstated the suspended Twitter accounts of journalists from CNN, The Washington Post, and The New York Times. Regarding their suspensions, he tweeted, quote, they posted my exact real-time location, basically assassination coordinates, in direct violation of Twitter terms of service. And, quote, Mary, is that accurate? Uh,
3: According to The Washington Post, it is not accurate. (laughs) And I think when you look at everything that's happened over the last couple of months with Elon Musk, what you see is really how complicated and, frankly, impossible it is to do what he says he wants to do, which is he wants to run an absolutely free forum for all of us to debate with each other and say whatever we want but you're seeing him make rules because of course you need rules to have an environment where people want to be and exist but with musk in charge the rules he's making are capricious they're focused on protecting himself like this rule like this rule you just talked about with the journalist posting these coordinates quote unquote i mean it just it really gets to the nut of what the problem is with the initial argument that Elon Musk had for purchasing Twitter, which was to kind of open the floodgates and uh, I don't know, release the kraken. But it, it just <laughs> seems it, it it's 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 interesting because it it spun so quickly, mm. and you can see the problems in real time.
0: Well, we've got just a couple of minutes left here, and I and I want to give you all a chance to reflect on the year in news in 2022. I mean, I. I sometimes have trouble wrapping my mind around everything that's happened. But Jordan, if you if you had to sort of sum up the year for you in a few words, how would you describe it?
1: I would call it a roller coaster ride, uh, especially on my beat where, you know, President Biden started the year uh, really, down in the dumps, uh, he was coming off that uh, terrible withdrawal from Afghanistan. His domestic agenda seemed dead in the water, and then we saw him gain some momentum uh, as the Ukraine war started, and he really stepped out on the international stage and then he took a you know a, a ride down the the uh, roller coaster, if you will over the summer when inflation was really spiking, and Democrats looked like they were headed for major losses in the midterms only to see those losses not materialize as he put together a strong showing toward the end of the year. And meanwhile, he did get a lot done. He got his uh, Inflation Reduction Act passed uh, through Congress and a number of other bipartisan Mm -hmm. things. So a lot of ups and downs this year on my beat, and uh, I suspect it'll be somewhat similar next year.
0: Marion, just a couple of sentences. What about you? Yeah, I mean, I think the the
3: sum up for me is it's complicated. There were so many things that happened this year that should have been an endpoint, right? Like Republicans got what they wanted, or conservatives, I should say, when it comes to abortion in the Supreme Court. But we just saw it got even more complicated after that. Um, you know, you look at what happened with the midterm elections, way more complicated than almost anyone expected. You know, people were really expecting a red wave. And that's not what happened. And I just think, you know, adjust your expectations.
0: That's what I learned from this year. Ron, just a couple of sentences from you. I would
2: say the key word here is reclaim. 2022 was a year in which we tried to reclaim our lives from the pandemic. We tried to get our economy back. We tried to get our political system back from 2020 and 2021. People tried to restore some kind of normal life. And it was a mixed bag. As we've all said, it's been a year of very confusing indicators lots of multi-directional indicators. We don't know which way to look next. And so we look to the future and uh, we try further to get our lives back to where they were before these disruptions.
0: That's Ron Elving. He's a senior political editor with NPR. Also with us, Mary Harris, host of the Slate podcast, What Next? And Jordan Fabian, the White House correspondent for Bloomberg News. Thanks to you all. You're listening to the News Roundup. We'll discuss the week's biggest headlines from around the world in just a moment. This is 1A. This is the 1A podcast. I'm Jen White, and this is the International News Roundup. Any address to a special joint session of Congress comes with a degree of pageantry. And Wednesday, Ukraine's President Zelensky brought plenty of it and purpose.
4: Your money is not charity. It's an investment in the global security and democracy that we handle in the most responsible way.
0: In today's hour, the last global roundup of the year, we also look at stories out of China, Afghanistan, and a big climate meeting held in Canada. Joining us is Idris Ali, national security correspondent at Reuters covering the Pentagon. Idris, it's always great to have you.
4: Thanks for having me.
0: Also with us is Saleha Mosin, senior Washington correspondent for Bloomberg News. Saleha, welcome.
6: Wonderful to join.
0: And let's welcome back Melissa Chan, a foreign affairs journalist based in Berlin. Melissa, thanks for joining us.
5: Thank you for having me on. So let's start here in
0: the nation's capital. In his first international trip since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, President Zelensky thanked Congress and the American people for their steadfast support of his country. Before a joint session of Congress and after a standing ovation, Ukraine's leader told lawmakers that, quote, against all odds and doom and gloom scenarios, Ukraine Didn't fall. And it was a big moment. I'm interested to hear from each of you what stood out from his speech and this visit to Washington. Melissa?
5: Well, I think what's notable from where I sit is that it was interesting that Zelensky coached it very much in terms of Ukraine being on the front lines of a global fight against autocracy, that Ukraine is fighting for democracy around the world. And we're getting that message from a few places, of course, with my background looking at Asia as well. Uh, Taiwan's President Tsai Ing-wen has said the same thing, and certainly this Russian invasion has launched a lot of discussion in the foreign policy world about what lessons China is taking from the war, given Xi Jinping's very clear message about how Beijing must see Taiwan as part of the People's Republic of China eventually. And of course, we've also seen President Biden say the same thing about how democracies around the world must come together. He uh, held that Democracy Summit in 2021, which will be held again in the spring of next year in 2023. For me, it's unclear how this messaging and framing things in terms of democracies versus authoritarian states, how that resonates with the general public around the world. But it is something that we've been seeing in the last few years. Saleha, so what about for you?
6: You know, for me, what really stood out was, like you said, the pageantry of it uh zelensky chose his timing for his first trip abroad since the invasion began carefully and of course he had quite a bit of luck on his side december 21st is the shortest day of the year it's the heart of winter when much of his electorate is facing hanukkah and christmas with intermittent electricity running water just living in the ruins of war that is now in its 300th day and Congress is at the same time considering, should we give you another $37 billion? There's lawmakers on the fence. We're heading into uh, a fresh session in Congress. And the White House has just come through with his biggest request, the Patriot missile battery, that he had asked for to help stave off the Russians. So this 5,200 mile journey, um, he, he really brought a message that it, it's clear he felt he could only deliver this in person. Uh, His message was, thank you to the American people, but please keep doing more. And for Biden, you know, in a lot of ways, the war and the U.S.'s reaction and actions are defining President Biden's uh, presidency as well. So he needs to keep persuading the American public that it's worth a little bit of pain here at home to help protect a democracy that maybe at one point, not everyone could easily find on the map. Ukraine's a small country, Eastern Europe, and it's sort of eclipsed by a lot of other countries um, that ha- resonate a little bit more deeply in the United States. So that half-day dash that uh, Zelensky had in Washington, you know, it really did, the timing of it was seemed felt very special. And he was clearly being an actor and a politician capitalizing on, Hitting those messages, hitting those notes as strongly as he could, and capitalizing on the timing.
0: Idris, I want to hear your big takeaways from the speech and the visit. But but first, what do we know about how Zelensky got here and back, that 5,200 mile journey?
4: Yeah, so I mean, this all seems to have started in October when uh, Speaker Pelosi was in Croatia and she met several Ukrainian officials. And it turns out, you know, that's when the first invitation was extended to the Ukrainian government for Zelensky to come over. Um, the White House didn't formally extend an invitation till about December 11th, and it really wasn't accepted till over the weekend. And that really led to this scramble for the U.S. to try to bring um, Zelensky to the United States, given just the amount of threats he's facing from Russia being the president of Ukraine. So he basically took a train over from Ukraine into Poland and then you know went to, to, to either a, a base in Germany or or nearby, where he took a U.S. government plane, a U.S. military plane, really, a C-40, one of those blue tops that says United States of America, and then was flown um, from Europe to the United States and back. Um, And much of it was really shrouded in secrecy. You know, we saw flight tracking data showing, you know, reconnaissance planes near where Zelensky was taking off from. Uh, a bunch of fighter jets um, in and around his plane when he was in Europe. Really just a a massive level of security um, for someone of his stature and vulnerability to be flying, um, you know, in the middle of a war with a target on his head. Um, and so far, it seems to have gone off without a hitch because he's back in Ukraine and he made it, you know, um, unharmed or untouched.
0: And what stood out to you from his speech?
4: Yeah, there were two sort of things that stood out to me. First was just the fact that he was able to sort of read the tea leaves and see how um, support for Ukraine might start winning, um in a Republican led House of Representatives. And really, he, he, you know, it was really aimed at obviously talking to the American people, but trying to talk to some of those Republicans um, about the importance of uh, continued Ukraine or assistance to Ukraine. The other thing that stood out was, you know, he was very um, thankful to President Biden, to the American people. But it was also interesting because, you know, there was a sense that he was kind of going over Biden's head. Um, at times during his speech to Congress. You know, we all know that Biden has given a lot of weapons, but he's also stopped short of giving some of the, the weapons that Ukraine really wants, whether it's long-range missiles like or long-range systems like the Attackums or fighter jets or Abram tanks. And Zelensky made a direct appeal to Congress. So I think there was a sense that yes, he was grateful to Biden, but he also tried to in in you know subtle ways go over his head. And I think that hasn't been lost in officials um, at the White House or the Pentagon.
0: Well, I want to focus in on, on this moment in President Zelensky's speech, where he directed his ire not toward Russia, but a different foe.
4: Iranian deadly drones sent to Russia in hundreds In hundreds became a threat to our critical infrastructure. That is how one terrorist has found the other. It is just a matter of time when they will strike against your other allies. If we do not stop them now, we must
2: do it.
0: Lawmakers loudly applauded this attack. Iran has since condemned those remarks. A spokesperson for the Iranian government said, quote, Iran always respected the territorial integrity of other countries, including Ukraine. And Mr. Zelensky should know that Iran's strategic patience for baseless accusations will not be unlimited. Saleha, explain why this part of his speech is being seen as strategically important, given the new Republican House majority that takes over in January.
6: You know, it's interesting when we have a flip between Democrats and Republicans here in the U.S., all of a sudden, Iran policy can change and turn on a dime. You know, not a lot of foreign policy tends to do that uh, and historically hasn't done that. But ever since uh, the U.S. and the President Trump, uh, the Trump administration pulled out of the JCPOA, Iran policy has become a little bit of a political and partisan cudgel. But back to the main point, you know, It's interesting. There is a lot of nervousness about Russia gaining allies. Is India with Russia? Are are the Chinese officials and the government with Russia? And Iran and those two countries, China and Russia, have. Uh, China and India have spoken very carefully, tried to thread the needle, tried not to overtly pick sides and anger either party, the US or Russia. But then you look at Iran, and they have been a little bit more blatant, much more blatant in choosing Russia's side. And one thing we can share is that uh, Biden's administration is expected to announce expert controls to target Iranian drones and drone parts that Russia has been using in Ukraine over the last 300 plus days. Um, and it looks like the European Union states are also backing similar measures. So it is, he did kind of pull at a very sensitive uh, foreign policy pillar when he made those comments during the joint session.
0: Jack tweets, as a veteran who fought in war, giving Ukraine money for weapons is a money pit. Unless Putin is removed, this will cost the U.S. dearly in tax dollars we don't have. The U.S. will never physically go to war with Russia. We're wasting money, just like like Afghanistan. Idris, we have just about a few seconds here, but could you quickly respond to that tweet? In a press conference between Presidents Biden and Zelensky before Zelensky's joint address, it was clear that the leaders do have a close personal connection. Here's President Biden speaking Wednesday afternoon.
2: I judge every leader by what they say to me, their consistency, and looking me in the eye. This guy, to his very soul, is who he says he is. It's clear who he is. He's willing to give his life for his country. And so I think it's uh, important for him to know we are going to do everything in our power, everything in our power to see that he succeeds.
0: Melissa, what do we know about the relationship between the two and and how it compares to the relationship between Zelensky and Biden's predecessor?
5: Um, Well, I mean, certainly Zelensky really struggled with uh, the relationship with uh, President Trump. Um, And, um, you know, the the messaging from Biden has been very consistent in terms of supporting Zelensky. It it seems like it's a good relationship and... um, It was really good that um, Zelensky went to Congress and spoke and had that meeting with the president. It it makes a lot of sense. I'll be very interested sitting in Europe to see when Zelensky will visit the United Kingdom because that's certainly a relationship where uh, the U.K. has delivered a lot of uh, assistance to
0: the Ukrainians. Mm -hmm. Well, this week, Russian state TV told its viewers that President Zelensky had traveled to Washington to quote-unquote beg for more weapons. That's according to the BBC. The Kremlin warned that increasing the supply of U.S. arms to Ukraine would aggravate the war. Here's President Putin speaking to his top generals earlier this week.
4: Almost all the main NATO countries are employing their military capabilities against Russia. But our soldiers, sergeants and officers are fighting courageously, confidently, step by step. They are tackling the goals they've been set. And these goals
0: will be achieved. Melissa, what do we know about what Russia might do next?
5: I mean, it seems like if you believe, I think the main thing is to always pay attention to what Putin is saying um, and his it seems like he's doubling down. It seems in crazy. Um, f- certainly, when you listen to what military strategists around the world who are observing this conflict are saying about what Russia should be doing, um, if it really cares about its future, it, it, the future of its people, it's the future of its economic integrity, um, but it sounds like he's planning on doubling down and not giving up. Hmm.
0: Idris, in Wednesday's press conference, Zelensky was asked about the move to find a, quote, just peace. What are you hearing from Pentagon sources about whether this is a fight that can be won on the battlefield? Yeah, it's interesting
4: because there does appear to be different opinions within the Biden administration. We have, you know, potentially on one side, the White House and State Department who are, you know, essentially there for diplomacy who are saying, look, this just doesn't seem like something that can happen that is, you know, a negotiated or just settlement between um, Russia and Ukraine, because the two countries are just so far apart, just on the definition of what you know Ukraine is Russia believes you know Crimea is part of Russia Ukraine believes you know Crimea is part of Ukraine so there's a lot of skepticism in, in those branches interestingly the Pentagon and the military the ones who are actually you know responsible for carrying out war are a lot more skeptical on um the, the need for war or the ability for it to continue. You know, at the end of the day, um, war is a political act. And General Mark Milley, the, the top U.S. general, has said that the war needs to end with a negotiated settlement. The issue is, it is very unclear what, how they would even start talking. The only talks that have happened between the Russians and Ukrainians is on hostages or prisoners of war who are being swapped. And so, for those to escalate or to go up to higher levels um, is something that needs to happen. But I think there's just a lot of sort of skepticism within the U.S. government broadly about how that'll happen, when that'll happen, and for you know one thing, I think there's a sense that they need to give Putin some sort of face-saving way to be able to come to the negotiations because he's put so much on the table um, within Russia on um, talking about how he and the Russian military can defeat Ukraine. And so for him to then go to the negotiating table, I think, would be seen as embarrassing and a bit of a loss. I think they're looking at ways at how they can bring Putin to the table without actually embarrassing him.
0: Well, Melissa Bloomberg reports that Chinese President Xi Jinping has asked Russia to begin talks with Ukraine how How much could that do to to get uh, Putin to the negotiating table?
5: I think that's always the big question about China and just how much leverage it has with its very few allies. Um certainly, as someone who's covered the North Korea talks uh for many years, uh, there was always a feeling that the Chinese could put some pressure on Pyongyang in those negotiations, but we really never saw anything that uh, suggested that that was the case, actually. And certainly there's been a lot of focus on the China-Russia relationship. And again, I'm not entirely sure we know just what kind of leverage the Chinese have. Uh, They've made comments also in the past about not wanting to see anything turn into a nuclear conflict. Uh, This was viewed as putting pressure on Putin not to, certainly to bring down the temperature in terms of his rhetoric and suggestions about um, the nuclear aspect of all of this um but again i I just think that we don't know this relationship to be honest um we see it from the outside both uh, putin and she are leaders that we have very little insight into to a certain extent Um, it's not as if their offices have people who leak information about the thinking behind these leaders and um even though it looks like the relationship has been very very close um particularly this year, again, there are limits. I I think we need to be careful and understand that there could very well be limits in terms of just how much Beijing can have an influence on Moscow. Well, let's move
0: to China, where a COVID surge is filling up hospitals. Infections in China are likely to be more than a million a day, with deaths at more than 5,000 a day. That's according to the British-based health data firm Airfinity. Melissa, what do we know about how many people are being affected by this wave?
5: Uh, Well, that's another thing. It's an authoritarian state that's not transparent. Uh, We have what state media says. And then we have what people say on uh, social media platforms in China that are often um, the posts are very quickly removed and censored. Um, So it is very hard, um, of course, to state the obvious. China is a very big country. So it's very hard to have a sense of just what's happening. Um, You have videos And photos of empty shelves in major cities as people hoard um, paracetamol, you know, the equivalent of Tylenol or an Advil. Uh, But then there are 100 massive cities with populations of millions of people across the country. So it's tough to get a sense of what the true macro picture is. Um, The other thing is that uh, precisely because it's an authoritarian state, uh, people inside China doesn't believe their own media. And so in some ways, that fuels rumors even more. Rumors thrive more powerfully in authoritarian states because people are afraid and don't trust their government and believe that their government is often lying to them. And fear, of course, breeds worst-case scenario imagination. So then you have stories of crematoriums being overwhelmed and questions about how many people have died so far. And I think... We still just don't know how uh, bad things are and where, whether the country will pull through. And I think it'll take a few more weeks before, um, you know, picking up all these little bits of data that we have, that we have an even clearer picture.
0: You mentioned the shortage of medicines like Tylenol and Advil as people have resorted to panic buying. That shortage is also affecting Taiwan and markets as far as Australia. I want to turn now to a popular video sharing app that's no stranger to controversy. It's owned by Chinese company ByteDance. And of course, we're talking about TikTok. In the U.S., Congress banned the app from government phones as part of the $1.7 trillion omnibus package. More than 100 million people in the U.S. use that app every day. Idris, why are lawmakers restricting the use of TikTok?
4: Yeah, so this is a fairly popular sort of social media app that had already been banned on, you know, military phones, on a lot of federal agencies, including the White House, Homeland Security, State Department, and basically there's been a lot of concern over the past couple of years about. China and its ability to use the data that users would put into the app, whether it's you know, their age, email addresses, um, their home addresses, information like that, and then for the Chinese government to be able to use that. So that's been a concern that's been talked about for, for you the know, past couple of years. The FBI director, um, Ray, last month said that it really just posed a national security threat to the United States and was something that the government really needed to take on. So, you know, besides this, this bill that would ban it on government devices, I think we've seen about 19 of the 50 U.S. states have already, already at least partially blocked um, government access. So it's something that's been in train for quite a while, but we really are going to see that restriction being codified. And, you know, for their part, TikTok has said, look, we work in the United States, we have nothing to do with the Chinese government, and this is you know, penalizing our 130 million U.S. users um, for no reason at all. So I think we're going down this path where um, the U.S. government isn't going to change its mind. Um, This ban itself will probably not affect a lot of Americans, but down the road it could have, you know, a, a real impact on the customer base for TikTok in the United States.
0: So Leha, what are you watching for specifically around how this government ban could affect everyday users of an app like this?
6: Yeah, I think Idris kind of picked up on it perfectly there that it's more of uh, what does the signal going forward for Americans? Because what we've heard in the last month is uh, one comment from FBI Director Christopher Wray. Uh, he said to a panel of lawmakers that the Chinese government could use TikTok to control uh, user data, software. Um, and he and, and you know, what the algorithms that populate help populate what news we see, what TV shows, what social media posts we see. Um, and that could be uh, used for in, to influence the electorate in any kind of in, election meddling interference. And that warning uh, combined with the U.S. Senate's vote to. Uh, is where we need to look for what could it mean for the average American user. It could just mean that this national security risk elevates to a point where uh, they are finding ways to curb its use here in the U.S. or heavily start monitoring where China is intervening and influencing how the U.S. uses it. Uh, We're also seeing that the Biden administration itself, the executive branch, is trying to forge some kind of an agreement with TikTok that would allow the site to keep operating in the U.S. as long as there's more safeguards on how U.S. data is stored. So it's a little bit of a carrot and stick uh, negotiation that we're seeing. And if, you know, working with the DOJ, an agreement can be reached to safeguard American user data, I think that would be Uh, something that the, you know, all the users across the country and and teenagers and and whatnot who are using the social media service would be really happy about.
0: Here's a climate story that's not so depressing. 190 countries met in Montreal over the last two weeks to come up with a way to protect Earth's ecosystems. And on Monday, they struck a deal. Saleha, what is this group of nations promising to do?
6: Yeah, this is quite interesting. You know, for decades, UN climate talks have sort of shunned this whole idea of private sector involvement. And during COP15, there was the biodiversity summit. It became clear that, you know, that idea is kind of going into the past. So there's an agreement now that was reached in Montreal at COP15 to protect one third of the Earth's land and water by the end of this decade. Uh, and that that really does have the potential to sort of shake up the rulemaking and regulatory landscape for investments. Um, the big challenge here is going to be implementing it. Um, but a little bit more about that deal, you know, if it's protecting 30 percent of the planet, let's say uh, 2030, uh, you know, that's going to require individual governments, everyone who's involved to set up very specific Uh, targeted programs to effectively protect and restore lands, um, inland water, coastal areas. Uh, At the moment, I think it's something just under 20% of the world's land and, you know, half of that, you know, 10% of the world's marine areas are protected. So there's a lot of room for improvement. And, you know, six, seven years is actually not a lot of time for governments to kind of find a way to make that goal.
0: Why isn't the U.S. officially in this agreement, Saleha?
6: You know, the US, uh, there's been a little bit of whiplash uh, from the Trump administration of where we stand on climate. There's a lot of uh, strife within congress of how to handle climate talks the us is also trying to do uh, a little bit of uh, diplomacy with the, with china you know it's one of the one it's the few one of the few areas where the us and china can meet and talk and make progress so i think there's a lot of um, hope that there can be efforts made in that direction
5: melissa how much of this is likely to happen though i think Saleha really hit it on the head when she made the point that it's really depends on enforcement and how do you really get countries to commit when we've seen them fall so far short on the other environmental agreement that is in the headlines a lot more, the Paris Agreement. Um, And going to China, China chaired this conference. It happened in Montreal, but this is a continuation of a conference that was originally going to be in Kunming, China. Um, It's worth noting that I I think with... I think it's worth pointing out that China, um, as has says, is it's one of the few things that China and the United States have said that they're willing to work together on. Um, and part of the reason is because a lot of the longtime government officials on the Chinese side working on, on both climate and, and biodiversity have demonstrated a deep commitment and care for years. Going back to the time when I was in Beijing, I saw a lot of that. Um, their power uh, has have limits, right? Um Sometimes the politics uh, overrides good climate policy. We see that not just in China, but of course happening in the United States uh, frequently. So it's something that's a challenge for countries uh, around the world. And going to the biodiversity agreement, it will depend on individual countries. Uh, It's hard. Uh, China itself is working to build a national park system Um, This is part of something to protect the biodiversity. I've also seen how it's working to reforest regions and combat desertification. But again, it goes back to enforcement. What are the incentives? This week, a typist who worked in a
0: Nazi concentration camp was convicted in Germany for being complicit in the murders of more than 10,500 people. The 97-year-old woman was given a two-year suspended sentence. Idris, this is the first woman to be convicted for Nazi crimes by a German court in decades. Tell us more about this case.
4: Yes, earlier this week, the convicted um, Imkrad Fershne, who is basically a former Nazi camp secretary, um, of complicity in the murder of about 10,000 people. And the question really was um, that was, you know, put to the courts is, can you be, work? could you have been working at one of these camps and not been responsible um, for the murders even if you physically didn't do them? And that's, you know, been a question that's been brought up in in many of these type of cases. What makes this so interesting is that it's probably likely to be the last process um, connected to the Nazi um, war crimes um, in in Germany, just given the ages of so many of them. And, you know, the district court um, basically gave her a two year suspended sentence um and, and and they came down saying it was basically impossible to believe that she wasn't in some way aware of what was going on in the camps um at the end of the trial. She apologized for what she had done um but didn 't sort of give any more details about it and you know it's one of those things that obviously has huge historical significance, um, and some of the victims, his families, they said they were satisfied with the outcome, not necessarily because of the two years, which some people have said was less, but the fact that she was found guilty um, in this instance. and I think it you know it doesn't put a full stop, um, but it gives them some level of closure um, over what happened um, all those years ago.
0: Well, let's turn now to Afghanistan. This week, the Taliban run Ministry of Higher Education suspended women from attending all public and private centers of higher education until further notice. It's another blow to the rights of women and girls in the country. This is 19 year old Mariam reacting to the news. She's a student at a vocational training center in northeastern Afghanistan. She says this training center was our hope. What can these girls do? They were full of hope and came here to learn. It is really a pity. They have taken all our hopes. They closed schools, universities, and the training center, which was very small. Saleha, how are women in Afghanistan responding to this
6: news? Well, you know, the great part is it's not just the women who are responding, it's also the men. There are more than a dozen male university teachers in Afghanistan who have resigned. A lot of the male students have also walked out of their classrooms to support the women who were forced out, saying that they don't want to continue uh, supporting or working somewhere and, and getting an education somewhere where unjust and immoral activities are happening. The women and girls themselves, they've taken them to the streets in uh, Afghanistan's capital, Kabul. Uh, they were chanting education for all. Some local media there was talking about soldiers um, kind of, you know, a- attacking the protesters, hitting them with sticks and whips. Uh, and there are also journalists who are covering the event that were hurt. But, you know, a lot of what we're seeing, it kind of there's similarities between what's happening in Afghanistan and the men that are showing solidarity there and what's happening right next door in Iran, where... Months of protests we've seen are uh, simmering after a 22 year old woman uh, died in police custody after she was arrested for not wearing, following the Islamic dress code.
0: Well, despite promises the Taliban made, they have been chipping away at the rights of, of girls and women since they took power in August of 2021, especially on education. Idris, was this ban on higher education a surprise? It
4: wasn't. And I think some level of blame needs to go to the Biden administration in the United States, because in 2021, when there was a decision about whether the United States should militarily leave Afghanistan or not, there were advocacy groups and experts and former officials who pleaded with the Biden administration to not leave or to at least leave some presence because they were certain that exactly what's happening now would happen. Um, At the time, the Biden administration said, look, don't worry, we're still going to put pressure, we still have leverage. And as we're seeing today, that's not the case at all. Because in reality, yes, the United States um, has some leverage with aid and some of the banking institutions um, and some of the money the Afghan government has in foreign accounts. But in reality, the Taliban can survive without it. And they're showing that they really don't need the West. They don't need um, some of the money that they have in other accounts. And so I think a lot of, not a lot, but at least a, a bit of blame goes to the Biden administration, because this is something that probably should have been sorted out before US troops left Afghanistan. And there has not been a recognition in the United States so far that there is some level of complicity um, within the United States for the fate of many of the women who are now unable to go to high school uh, or to universities. The other thing is, this is not the first time um, women or or girls have been impacted by the Taliban rules. Um, Just a couple of months ago, um, the Taliban had been saying they're going to open up um, high school education for girls. Now, that hasn't happened either. So basically, no girl or woman is able to receive an education um, above sixth grade, which is, you know, Terrible, but unfortunately not surprising.
0: Well, the Taliban edict received widespread international condemnation almost immediately from the US, United Nations, Turkey, and several European leaders. But some Afghan women say protesting the ban is not enough. Once again, the university is banned for women. We do not want to be eliminated. It is shameful that the international community, the United Nations, and human rights groups choose to remain silent. On Thursday, the foreign ministers of the G7 group of states urged the Taliban to rescind the ban, warning that, quote, gender persecution may amount to a crime against humanity. Idris, how will this ban change the way countries in the G7, like Canada, France, Germany, and the U.S., engage with the Taliban?
4: Um, so there's already been very minimal engagement with the Taliban. So, you know, in terms of what will it change, I, I don't think it will change much. Um, you know, the the statement about war, war crimes against humanity, war crimes, um, you know, the Taliban has committed dozens of crimes um, during the war over the past two decades and since then. So I think Their statements about international courts and the crimes that they're committing really do fall on deaf ears because the Taliban government in Afghanistan, I don't think, really, frankly, cares about them. And so I I think the frustration that the women um, have in Afghanistan is shared by a lot of people around the world um, and experts and former officials because, again, it's one of those things where, like, statements are great— But in reality, they have very little practical impact. And so I think there's a lot of concern um, talked about in statements, but the actual practical impact of them is, is unfortunately very limited.
0: And despite the global backlash, the Taliban Minister of Higher Education, Nina Muhammad Nadeem, said the ban was necessary to prevent the mixing of genders in universities and because he believes some subjects being taught violated the principles of Islam. Uh, Saleha, we have the effect of, of the U.S.'s pullout from Afghanistan on women and girls, but more broadly speaking, what is life like in Afghanistan right now?
6: know there's terrifying stories in the news these days about what's happening there is a huge food crisis there's not enough money there uh there's not enough work there and there's definitely not enough food there people are and this is just the saddest part of what i've heard is that people families are having to choose Uh, who to feed in the family. Elderly are saying, I don't want to eat. Give it to children. They're the ones who are our future. And the saddest part is that there is uh, a flourishing opium market there. And what some parents are being forced to do is to give their children opium and other drugs in order to stave off their hunger because they have no other option. The children are crying. Babies want milk. And there's nothing for them to offer them.
0: We got this tweet from Aaron who says, so I guess we were supposed to just stay in Afghanistan forever to keep schools for girls open. How would we sort it out when it's obvious that the radical religious leaders in Afghanistan don't want women to get schooling? Idris, how is this being discussed in the White House and the Pentagon?
4: Yeah, I think that's a fair point. You know, look, the the U.S. was militarily engaged in Afghanistan for 20 years and didn't have much to show for it. So it was never going to be an open ended commitment, um, or, you know, they just couldn't stay there forever. But I think there was a way, now looking at it retrospectively, that the U.S. could have pulled out that would have maintained some level of diplomatic presence in Afghanistan, um, not totally just abandoned the country. And I think that's what a lot of people who were um, at the White House and at the Pentagon over the past 22 or 20 years um, are now looking at, you know, how could it have been done in a way that was not as reckless as it ended up becoming? Going forward, I think there's a lot of debate within the administration about what leverage they actually have. Um, You know, the the Taliban is basically continuing without the funding um, that they're receiving. So I think there's, it's it's perplexing um, for um, the administration. The one thing that I've heard that they're looking at is talking to countries like Pakistan um, and potentially China about the influence that they have with the Taliban. And so I think the United States and the West directly is probably unable to do much. But I think the strategy going forward will be to talk to countries like Pakistan, who have some level of influence with the Taliban, to see what change they can bring about.
0: Well, I want to spend some time at the end of the hour talking about your reflections on this year's news. But first, let's touch on Sunday's World Cup drama. Argentina's victory over France in penalty kicks has become the most watched soccer match of any kind in the United States. Statistics from Nielsen and Fox put the TV and streaming audience in the U.S. north of 26 million. And early estimates suggest the global audience for the final was 1.5 billion. And that's a good enough reason to hear this again va Montiel
6: Montiel gol
0: no.
4: ¡GOL! ¡ARGENTINA CAMPEÓN!
1: ¡ARGENTINA CAMPEÓN DEL MUNDO! ¡ARGENTINA CAMPEÓN DEL
6: MUNDO! ¡ARGENTINA CAMPEÓN DEL
0: MUNDO! That's Argentine American broadcaster Andres Cantor. Idris, where would you rank A, the final, and B, the overall tournament?
4: That's probably the best one that I've seen. World Cup finals usually fall way short of expectations. They're pretty conservative. And this was anything but because it's such a roller coaster, right? Um, and, you know, the the numbers that you read out make perfect sense because it was again a fascinating game that went to penalties for the broader tournament i think it's just interesting because the tournament started on a pretty low note with some you know very legitimate concerns about human rights um you know banning of alcohol two days before the tournament even though they had agreed to allow it being served in stadium so there was you know it was a pretty low note and i think there was a lot of concern about how it would actually play out and for the tournament to end on you know, a game like this, I think most people will probably end up remembering the World Cup for the final rather than um, the other issues that have plagued it over the past month.
0: Well, and and what does this mean for Lionel Messi?
4: You know, he was supposed to retire after the World Cup final, but he then came out after the the, the final and the victory and said, actually, I'm not done. So we're probably going to see more of him. Um there was some hinting at the fact that he could take part in the 2026 uh, World Cup in the United States, if especially if he moves to a club in the United States at that time. So I think we're going to see a lot more of him in the years to come.
0: Well, Saleha, it's tempting to talk only about the winner, but the final can only be as good as the two teams in it. Uh, Morocco's run was remarkable. The U.S. men's team is young. It's full of promise. What did you take away from the overall competition?
6: You know, it was great to see uh, Americans so engaged. My middle schooler said that his uh, in his afternoon health class, they would spend a lot of time watching the games, and kids were persuading their teachers to be able to watch it or rushing off to the bathroom to check scores. That goes to show that when the World Cup does come to, the, to North America, Canada, the U.S., and Mexico in 2026, there will be a lot of interest here. Uh, and yes, of course, Morocco, you know, the really interesting thing was to see some Cinderella stories happening in the World Cup, it's just been dominated for many, many years by European teams. And uh, second to those are the South American teams. But to see uh, Morocco, the first African country to break into the quarterfinals, you know, they went home as heroes, just like Argentina and uh, Lionel Messi had their open-top bus tours around uh, their capital city in Buenos Aires and Argentina, the Morocco team landed in Casablanca. They also had an open-top bus tour. Everyone was just really celebrating that uh, historic win that they had and just how far they went in going the distance for the the country.
0: We've got just a little over a minute here, and I want to wrap with some final thoughts on the year or perhaps a global story you think will likely impact the news in 2023. Melissa, let's start with you.
5: Ah, well, for me, for 2023, I think I'm going to be looking late in that year uh, for the elections in Taiwan. That's going to be a big one, and it will determine how Beijing responds and, of course, have an impact on the neighbors in the region. So, Leha, what about for you?
6: You know, I'm going to go really broad with my answer. For decades, we've been talking about economic diplomacy and working together. And now, you know, we've really turned uh, ac- uh, turned how we're approaching this. And it's more about economic statecraft, how to use your economy and other economies as a way to get foreign policy goals across the line. Just take, for example, uh, Ukraine and what's happening uh, in other parts of the world. In China, just the other day, we had a senator, uh, Ron Wyden, talk about wanting to um, tell Automakers not to bring in uh, imports from China if any of the parts for these complicated cars are made in um, Xinjiang, where, where in, in by the Uyghurs, where there are human rights violations. And so that right there is uh, the weaponization of economic strength, and that's an interesting story. Idris, I'll give you the last word.
4: Yeah, for me, 2022 was. Uh huge success for the Biden administration when it came to foreign policy with Russia and Ukraine. It was, you know, basically a reversal of their foreign policy failure in Afghanistan to success. And for 2023, I'm basically going to be looking at Ukraine and Russia and in what direction it goes. Is it going to continue to be a military um, war or is it going to turn into diplomacy?
0: That's Idris Ali, National Security Correspondent at Reuters covering the Pentagon. Also with us, Aleha Mosin, Senior Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg News, and Melissa Chan, a foreign affairs journalist based in Berlin. Idris, Aleha, Melissa, thanks for speaking with us. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Paige Osborne is our managing producer. Maya Garg is our senior producer. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand, with help from Matthew Simonson. And Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Happy, merry, all the things. Thanks for listening. This is 1A.